Hi, Sarah. Hi, Alison. So, episode 40, Spotlight on France. Yeah, and what a ride it's been. I feel like we've got a slogan we could use today, Metro Boulot Dodo. That's a, a French expression for the rather boring routine of travelling to work, then working and then coming home to sleep, because that's what's in store for us now for the next six weeks. Yeah, President Emmanuel Macron made a speech last night on, on Wednesday to address the increased numbers of COVID cases in France. Um, we're now under a curfew from 9 p.m. to 6 a.m. starting on Saturday here in Paris and the region, also eight other cities where the infection rates are really high. Um, so we can only go out for work or for emergencies. Otherwise, we face fines. Yeah, now, the government's not shutting restaurants or bars, but in effect, it, it puts an end to nightlife here. And it's really bad news for cinemas, for, for theatres and, and concerts. Yeah, no more than six people around a table in restaurants. And at home, but the government recognises you can't police home gatherings, so uh, they're relying on our sense of responsibility. Yeah, all this kind of feels like a tax on pleasure. It does, doesn't it? And, and Macron did admit in a rare moment, I would say a verity, that being young in 2020 really wasn't easy now. Mm. And he chose not to blame young people for the spike in COVID cases, which in the past has been the case. Also, um, he's changed tact a bit on, on the testing and tracing. Um, there have been more than a million tests per week in France so far, but it's not been very efficient. There have been long lines to get them, and the results have been coming in too late. Yeah, and so they're going to be rolling out a new app. It's going to be more reactive, and they're also going to be implementing other quicker forms of testing, including self-testing. Ah, yeah. So, of course, this is a political issue in France, I mean, as it is in many places. Um, and the far left has already started criticizing this curfew, saying that most infections happen at work and school and universities. So during the day, not in the evenings. Of course, restaurant owners also are up in arms. Although the government does say they'll continue to bail them out so that they don't go out of business once and for all. Yeah, which isn't the case in many other places. Um, there are also questions of whether or not there are enough police to actually enforce these nighttime curfews. Yeah, I've got visions of the the ring road around Paris on a Sunday evening at 8.30pm and people struggling to get home before nine. I think it's going to be a nightmare for the police, but uh, we'll just have to see how that goes. Of course, the curfews are in place for at least a month, if not six weeks, and the president reminded us that the virus will alas, be here until next summer. Next summer, at least. But we can still go on holiday. No restrictions oh. <laughs> on movement yet. Uh, Two-week school break starts this weekend and means people will be traveling to see family, also just taking a break. We'll also see how that goes. Sarah, you gave birth not so long ago, didn't you? Yeah, at the end of May. And so did you wear a mask during labour? Well, I started out wearing one, but at some point it came off and no one actually said anything. Um, this was right after the lockdown. There was still no requirement for masks for everyone that came into effect last month. Um, and the hospital staff, to be honest, didn't seem that concerned. Mm, can you imagine what it would have felt like to wear a mask? I have to say it was something I was very, very worried about ahead of time. I was asking the midwives at every appointment and they said I would have to wear one even during the final pushing of the delivery. And that, to be honest, really freaked me out because 
you know, breathing is so much a part of giving birth to ease pain and all the preparation ahead of time is about taking deep breaths. Exactly. Well, hospitals appear to be taking a much harder line now than they did earlier in the pandemic. And women have been sharing their horror stories on social media over the last few weeks. They've been talking about not being able to push hard enough to get the baby out. And so they've had to have an emergency C-section at the last minute. Some have been mm. sick, vomiting into their masks. Uh, uh. One woman related how she, when she refused to put a mask on, well, she was just told there would be no team to deliver her baby. Oh, my goodness. That's horrifying. I guess medical staff are really uh, laying down the line and getting categorical. Yeah. 26-year-old Elodie from Metz in the east of France gave birth in June to a little girl. And she told me that wearing the mask was indeed unbearable. Uh, it was absolutely horrible. Being like forced to wear a mask the whole time I was in the delivery room, uh, I couldn't breathe. To be honest, it's like um, suffocating. You can't literally be pushing out a baby of your body and breathing in the same time with a mask. It's 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 absolutely horrible. And when you tell them you can't breathe, you're just like, no, yeah, you can, you can. It's absolutely fine. You can do it. So did you try and remove it? When I started to push my baby, I had still the mask on. But I, I ripped it off literally like before the last push because I couldn't take my breath. How would you describe your experience? I think it is like a form of violence because you, your birth is not really your birth. Like you've got an image of the birth, like being supported, being with your husband or your wife or anyone you want with you at the moment of the birth of your child. But like you can't really have that. Sometimes you're completely left alone. I think it's a form of violence because I still have got angst, you know, like fear. So Elodie's story, Sarah, is just one of hundreds of testimonies that have been gathered by a collective known as Stop VOG, which campaigns against obstetric and gynaecological violence in France. Last month, the College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists issued its recommendations. It strongly recommended women wearing masks during labour to protect medical staff, but it stopped short of saying it was an obligation. Sonia Bish, however, the founder of Stop VOG, told me in reality women are not being given the choice. The recommendations say it can't be forced, but the reality is the opposite. You know, there are a lot of women who are buying the masks FFP2, uh, good masks uh, with filter for the medical team, and they say, OK, I bought the FFP2 for you, so please, I don't want to wear a mask during labour and delivery. The maternity hospital tell them, no, you will have to wear a mask during labor and delivery and that sort. They impose them that. And there are uh, women in France that are going to Germany to give birth because there there is no mask. Just how widespread is this problem? I mean, how many hospitals are concerned? We did an online questionnaire to know the practice in uh, on the maternities. We asked the pregnant women to call their hospitals and to inform us. And so now half of the maternity hospitals has been called and 80% of them impose the mask at women during labor and delivery. We did a survey, a big national survey during summer. 
and there were uh, 46% of women that had to wear a mask. Now it's much more. Now it's 80% or 85%. These 46% of women had more complications giving birth and they had more uh, depression and uh, stress post-traumatic too. So it's dangerous for their health. So you're saying this is a form of violence? Yes, and it's uh, the president of the National College of Midwife in France that said that it's an obstetric abuse. To force women to have masks, he said that, and we agree with him, because the women, you know, they are telling it's not possible, they are crying, they are shouting, and the, the medical team forced them to have this mask. What does this all tell us about France and the culture here in France? It just shows us that what women say, it doesn't matter in France. And, you know, there are a lot of uh, people who are seeing their pain in the Internet, you know, and it's like what women say, nobody cares. It's horrible. It's like the health of the woman giving birth. It doesn't matter for our government or for our society. It's incredible. How would things be different if men were the ones giving birth? I'm sure there wouldn't be any mask. Because, you know, when, when they go uh, uh, running, there is no mask. When you do bicycle, there is no mask. But it's shocking that when women, when they, when they give birth, they have to wear a mask. And it's unuseful to protect the medical team. What do you want to happen then? I'd like our government to listen to women and to protect their health and to give enough protections to the medical team to avoid a woman, pregnant women to wear masks. So you'd think one solution of this, of course, is to give birth at home, but that's not really done here. No, uh, Sarah, home birthing is still rather rare in France. It's seen as as rather irresponsible as if you're putting your own life and your baby's life at risk. And few midwives will accompany you with this and their insurance premiums are absolutely huge. So it's just not developing here. with the baby theme so I just had a baby here he is you can hear him I'm gonna talk about breastfeeding I've noticed with both of my children one of the first questions people ask me I mean besides uh, is he sleeping through the night yet is he <laughs> is, are you breastfeeding him mm. Yeah, because you don't see that many women breastfeeding in France do you no no it's not very common at all we have one of the lowest breastfeeding rates in the world that's Stephanie Habenstein. She's the founder of a web-based platform giving information to breastfeeding mothers. She started the site called Vanilla Milk three years ago because she found there was a real lack of information. She says surveys and information gathered by midwives and hospitals show that most French women are interested in breastfeeding their children at first. More than 80% of pregnant women want actually to breastfeed or at least are looking for information. And once they give birth, the rate falls to 50%, uh, roughly. 50% uh, of the mothers are actually exclusively breastfeeding. And then three months later, it's 20%. 
And then three months later, which means six months, which is the recommendation from the World Health Organization, at six months in, in France, it's only 9% of the mothers who are still exclusively breastfeeding. So I wonder why the rate is so low. Maybe it's because maternity leave in France isn't that long. Yeah, I thought that might be part of it. Maternity leave is 10 weeks after you give birth, then it's back to work. Baby usually goes to daycare with a nanny. But Stephanie says there's actually something more fundamental. Often women will attempt to breastfeed their second child, for example, having gained confidence and insight from the first, which didn't work. They were well prepared and they dared talking to their employer about having some time to uh, pump their milk or actually to ask for special arrangements. The main question is, do I dare asking? The problem in France, the mothers, the women, they, they don't talk about that because they believe that it will be a no for sure. So that there's that feeling of not daring to ask and, and being worried about, you know, not being able to do it and getting judgment. There are quite a few negative stereotypes about breastfeeding in France. Yeah, like the saggy boob thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or that it somehow curbs your freedom. People will say that you become enslaved by your child when you become a mother. That's Carole Hervé. She's a lactation consultant. She helps future mothers prepare to breastfeed or helps them troubleshoot when there's a problem. People say that you should put your baby in the crib and it should sleep uh, through the night, give them a bottle and formula and you'll be free. Oh, that, that old freedom chestnut there, uh, freeing yourself mm -hmm. from your child. This is what the feminist movement of, from the 1970s was fighting for, wasn't it? Allowing women to escape from the shackles of, of domestic life. Yeah, for to some extent. And, and it seems to be where this all comes from. Um, a lot of women of the baby boomer generation who are today in their 70s did not breastfeed in France. Their parents did. Um, the attitude of breastfeeding tying you down actually continues today. Um, I spent some time with Carole Hervé in her office in Paris. She was receiving clients. These days, it's both in person and online via Zoom. This client, Julia, is someone she's seen before. In these consultations, Carole addresses problems, advises mothers-to-be. In Julia's case, she's helping her figure out how to start weaning her baby over the next two months before Julia goes back to work. Julia nurses while she talks. Her baby, Louise, is seven weeks old. Carole explains how to reduce her breastfeeding gradually to replace it with formula. And at one point, Julia says that she'd like to introduce formula even earlier to have a bit more freedom, as she says. When I talked to her afterwards, she said she was interested in breastfeeding her daughter as soon as she got pregnant, even if none of her close friends had done it. And it's been going well, but she says she does feel a bit tied to the baby. C'est se dire que finalement on pourrait la laisser à, à sa maman ou à sa sœur quelques heures, alors que là, vu que je sais que je suis sa source d'alimentation, je pars pas. She says here that she'd like to leave the baby with her mother or her sister a few hours, but she doesn't because she is the source of food and pumping milk works. But it's not very glamorous. Carole Hervé says that she's seen attitudes towards breastfeeding in France shifting a bit. Her consultations, for example, are always booked. The new generations have seen more breastfed babies than our parents have 
Oh, I have. I'd never seen a, a breastfed baby before I became... Uh, actually, that's wrong. I saw one of my cousins breastfeed, and I saw her crying because she thought it was so nice that she felt very emotional. And I thought, wow, I want to experience this myself. But I, I think she was the only one in my um, environment who truly breastfed. So what about doctors and midwives in all of this, Sarah? Are they encouraging? Well, it turns out that breastfeeding is not a part, a big part of maternal health care in France, despite reports showing that it should be encouraged. Um, Carole Hervé has teenage kids. She remembers the breastfeeding advice that she was given when her first child was born. The midwife who was um, close to me at that time said, well, you should wait four hours between the feeds. And if the baby asked for more, then you should give him the pacifier. And obviously it didn't work. So when he turned three weeks, the pediatrician that I saw said, well, look, you're being irresponsible here. This baby is starving and this is your fault. Pediatricians and midwives keep giving some piece of advice that is not appropriate because the training they get is very weak. And so they don't know that they don't know. So doctors only get a few hours of training in breastfeeding. The curriculum is a bit vague. It focuses more on the complications than on how it's actually supposed to work. Midwives get a bit more, but it's still not a priority. And why is that? Well, Carole Hervé blames baby formula producers and milk producers. They put pressure on the medical regulations. I've heard this elsewhere. But also, I mean, you have to think about it. It's actually simpler for hospital staff. You feed this to the child, they'll gain weight, and it's a very good technical solution. Little information about breastfeeding actually gets passed on to mothers unless they specifically ask for it, which Carole Hervé means that women in France don't actually have the choice in the first place. I believe we mothers don't really have a choice to breastfeed or not because no one is there to really give them the right uh, information when they need it. And so that's what she does. She gives information. She's a licensed lactation consultant. She went through hours of training to get a diploma and she receives clients, not patients, because she's not a doctor. Um, she's outside the health system here. Clients pay her 90 euros for an hour's consultation and that's not reimbursed by the social security system. Um, so women who do breastfeed in France tend to be those who can afford to pay for these kind of consultants. Yeah, pretty much. Gallo says that they tend to be better off or at least better educated to know where to look for the information and she says that's a pity. We know that the mothers who breastfeed in France are highly educated. They don't earn that much money but they need to be determined to breastfeed. They are around their 35 years and many many of them are foreigners. I just had a baby, um, my second one, and I had no problems breastfeeding. I intended to breastfeed both of them. And I gave birth at a public hospital here in Paris that's in a very immigrant neighborhood. And I found the staff there didn't even blink when I said, oh, I'm breastfeeding my child. And I felt there was quite a lot of support. It's a very different experience from a friend of mine who gave birth in another public hospital on the other side of town. And it made me wonder if there's a cultural element there because there are so many foreigners giving birth in the hospital I was in. And so almost the patients are training the staff. Yeah, yeah. In the hospital where, where you gave birth, the staff there is there to just watch and see what's going on. And then they have the support of the family, of the community that they're in. But in many hospitals, we have, we've got wonderful people, uh, staff trying to support mothers. The, the thing is they lacked some training and then mothers will keep receiving different messages from one person to the other. If somebody's here just to say, look, I trust you can do it. 
But this doesn't happen everywhere and we have to find this person who believes it's going to work. history now, Matahari. Ah, the beautiful spy. She was, but she was lined up and shot on October the 15th, 1917, so 103 years ago to the day. 1917, that's right in the middle of World War I. Uh, what was her crime? Officially, she was shot for spying for the German Empire, but it's more likely that she, in fact, paid the price for being a courtesan and rather frivolous during the war. Her real name was Margareta Gertruida Zell, and she was born in the Netherlands. When she was 19, she went looking for adventure. She married a captain in the Dutch colonial army. They went to live in the Dutch East Indies, that's now Indonesia. He was 19 years older than her, and he turned out to be a violent alcoholic. So they had a very bad marriage, ended up divorcing. She then moved to Paris, where she became known as an exotic dancer and went by the name, the stage name, of a Javanese princess called Matahari. That literally means eye of the day in the Malay language. She got a big break at the Musée Guimet in Paris. That's an Asian art museum that still exists today. Yes, and the wealthy elite audience, not least the rich male businessmen, the officers, the aristocrats, they saw her dancing in revealing costumes, sometimes virtually naked, and they loved it. Now, at the time, you could actually get arrested for that. Yes, so she had to navigate a rather fine line on that one. She presented the performances as sacred dancers, and the audience mm. loved it. She toured all over Europe. She became one of the most glamorous and desirable women in Paris. Rich men kept her in jewels and furs in return for her sexual services. Now, when the war broke out in 1914, she continued her extravagant ways and gradually, well, people came to resent her. Yeah, I imagine it didn't look very good to be whining and dining while people were getting basically slaughtered on the battlefields. Indeed. And so in late 1916, uh, she ended up having a passionate affair with a 21-year-old Russian pilot called Vadim Maslov. He was serving with the French at the time. He got shot down. She wanted to visit him at the hospital near the front, but because she was Dutch and uh, the Netherlands was neutral during the war, she had to get permission. And the only way she could get that permission was to promise to try and seduce and spy on the Kron Prince, the crown mm. prince of the German Empire. Ooh, the plot thickens. <laughs> it does. No, hang on. So she didn't manage to get to Germany. And through a turn of events, she ended up in Spain, where she ended up seducing a German military attaché instead. He offered her money to, in fact, spy on the French, so to do counter-espionage. Mm. She promised him information, which he then cabled to the crown prince. The problem is the cable got intercepted by the French. I imagine that did not go over so well. It didn't. And when she returned to France in 1917, she was arrested and charged with spying. The accusations were, in fact, very vague. They didn't come up with anything very specific that might have actually been passed on to the Germans. Nonetheless, she appeared before a military court in July 1917. Her prosecutors provided very little evidence of actual spying, but a lot about her immoral lifestyle. And the timing, of course, was pretty bad. The war in 1917 was going very badly for France at the time. Yeah. 
And that's perhaps the crux of the matter, in fact. There were a lot of mutinies at the time, and it does seem likely that the French authorities trumped up uh, her as the greatest woman spy of the century as a way of distracting from these huge losses that the French were suffering on the Western Front. So they found her guilty of sharing intelligence with the enemy, and she was sentenced to death. She was executed by a firing squad of 12 soldiers on October the 15th, 1917, and she was aged just 41. She refused a blindfold and she blew a last kiss to the, the soldiers. No one came to claim her body in the end and it was handed to the Faculty of Anatomy in Paris. Emily Cooper? Bonjour. Bonjour. I got a feeling I'm in trouble when I look at you. Uh, I'm Emily. You're a new neighbour? Enchanté. Because once I do it, yeah, I know I'll never get enough. So, you've come to teach the French some American tricks? Never get Emily from Chicago has taken Paris by storm, Sarah. The Netflix series charts the wonderful life of this ridiculously slim, attractive, long-haired American who gets a one-year work placement at an upmarket marketing firm in Paris. Um, she ends up replacing her boss who's fallen pregnant, which is why she gets to come here without speaking a word of the language. Huh, this show has been quite popular in the United States. Um, it also seems to be doing pretty well here, too. Yeah, despite getting the thumbs down from a lot of critics. So I must admit, I haven't watched it, but I have seen the Internet pretty much explode with barbs about all the cliches. I mean, the show really does present a very postcard-perfect version of the city. Yeah, there's the sexy and flirtatious Parisian men, the berets, plenty of croissants, you get long, <laughs> boozy lunches, child brats, um, loads of smoking, of course, uh, lazy work culture, grumpy waiters, what else can we ah. throw in? Yeah, um, And these endlessly beautiful uh, shots of Paris with only just a touch of dog mess. Um, only just a touch. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, whereas we know it's absolutely everywhere. Um, as the critic in 20 Minutes magazine said, quote a cliché about France and the French, and you will find it in Emily in Paris. Now, I've only watched a couple of episodes for work purposes, of course, but of the Franco-Scottish journalist and cultural commentator Marjorie Hash has binged them. Uh, so we talked about why it's hit a nerve. And for her, because she's, she's a long-time Parisienne, the vision of the city and the show is very far from reality. All the men look the same, you know, that they're, all her love interests are sort of out of the same factory. Um, and, uh, and the only black guy is gay. Yes, and she, you know, has no Maghrebian friends or people of Maghrebian origin. And the fifth is, you know, has got the big mosque of Paris, so you would, you know, bump into people. It's like I remember when I used to live in that area, it wasn't as white uh, as the one that she's depicting. And also, yeah, the health and safety, I was very confused about being allowed to drive out to the country sitting on some someone's lap in a in a car I don't think you'd get away with that I think you would be stopped <laughs> but I think what infuriated the French more than anything else was Emily the character herself being so you know can do American positive attitude and I'm going to teach the rest of the world aka France how to you know behave yet I can't speak French um, mm. she says herself doesn't she I've come to sort of teach you all about social media because that's something that you don't do as well as we do yeah. in the States. And she's in her early 20s and, as you say, doesn't speak the language. So that goes down like a lead balloon. I think that's the most infuriating. So you kind of love to hate her. And I think that would apply wherever she'd gone in the world and not just France. Um, and I also think, actually, 
although there was a lot of criticism about the cliches, I think there was an appreciation of the, the kitsch and the funness of it because it's pretty in that sense. It's nice to watch. She's wearing quite nice outfits. It's a beautiful sighting of the city. Even though some of the jokes are a bit rubbish and there's cliches, there's, there's a kind of, you know, you kind of joke along with it. I think uh, what they lacked a bit was the secondary characters. So, for example, her boss is supposed to be, you know, put downish and mean, but... I think she's pretty nice compared to a lot of the bosses uh, that, you know, you and I have probably had here in France. And she would not have got away being the age she is or, uh, you know, the sass of not speaking the language and, you know, um, you know going up and saying, I'm going to teach you everything. Like that would have been shut down in a much more violent manner. Um, so although they try and show the cliches of, you know, French people are lazy and don't go to work or, you know, or moan all the time or smoke all the time. Um, you know, obviously nowadays no one smokes indoors. No, and they don't really have two-hour boozy lunches anymore. No. And I must admit, the point about the work culture, actually, that's something that got my go. Emily turns up for work at 8.30 in the morning and they say, oh, no, you know, we, do, we never begin before 10.30. And most people in France actually don't finish till half seven or eight at night sometimes, you know. Um... It's true, isn't it? I mean, the, the surveys show France is actually a fairly productive country. It may not be as workaholic as the U.S., but um, it would be unfair, I think, to say that the French are lazy. Yeah, no, totally. I'm just wondering myself whether some of the success of the series also is because of this slightly chocolate box picture that it gives of Paris at a time when Americans in particular can virtually no longer visit because of COVID restrictions. So it's a sort of flashback to a period when you could go and savour that kind of thing. And maybe the pull of the nostalgia at the moment is perhaps stronger than ever. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think also even us Parisians, we're kind of missing this idea that we can walk around without a mask, carefree and jump into each other's arms. And although her, her Parisian streets are very empty compared to the ones we know, <laughs> I would also um, point out that like some of the brutality of living in Paris between strangers being aggressive and uh, just the daily commutes and metros and no, no can do um, sometimes attitude. Uh, I don't think they're highlighted just as m much as the should be or they how much they impact people really and I think it doesn't go far enough in terms of highlighting what's wrong with Paris and at the same time well sometimes we need a bit of a dream. It probably wouldn't have sold so well if it was just uh, the, the seamy side. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's quite nice to pretend go to a pretend world sometimes. And that's it for Spotlight on France. We'll be adding videos and photos from this episode to our Instagram account. Find us there at Spotlight on France. And we'd love to hear from you. If you have questions or suggestions about subjects, write to us. Spotlight.france at rfi.fr. This episode was mixed by Cécile Pompiani. You can find our previous episodes at rfienglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back again in two weeks' time on Thursday, October the 29th. Do hope you'll join us. And for you, Sarah, bye-bye. Bye, Alison. See you in two weeks. Bye.